Hey everybody, Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am uh, particularly excited about our guests for this particular podcast. A really interesting set of characters um, with an even more interesting project that they're working on. So I will do an abbreviated introduction to both of them. The extended full bios are obviously posted on our site. Um, and then we're just going to jump right in because there's so much really compelling, provocative material to talk about. So um, Courtney, Sheehan, Courtney Sheehan is the director, co-director of this project. I should say the director and co-producer of this project that we're going to be talking about at length. And she's a dream tech researcher, business strategist, and film consultant based in LA. And her partner in this project is Lori Poliski. Um, she is a filmmaker and neuroscience researcher working at the intersection of science and film. And I wanted to just say when, when I was sent the pitch deck to their project, which we're going to obviously talk about in some detail, I was really struck by the audience interests. And I wanted to just share this with you all because it'll give you some idea of the uh, scope of what they're doing here, the originality you know, the breadth of the topics that they're covering. And so the audience interest for the projects that the main project that they're working on includes dreams, sci-fi, tech, futurism, neuroscience, artificial intelligence, mindfulness, meditation, biohacking, healing, therapy, and art. And that's just amazing. So um, welcome so much to both of you. Thank you for taking time out of your busy life to chat with us for a little bit. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, really excited to be here. Terrific. And so the first thing we have to do, of course, there's so much to talk about. The first thing we have to do is um, chat about this amazing project altogether. So tell us what it is that you're working on, and then we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty here, because when I went through this, I was really impressed. Um, there's just so many really compelling topics to uh, dive into. So uh, maybe Courtney, let's start. Just give us an overview of, of what this project is altogether. And then let's just get into the thick of it and, and tease it apart a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I'm actually going to hand it off to Lori to start with the what it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, this is fine. Is this your first, is this the first three, three-way interview that's been on yes. the podcast yet? Yeah. So you're, you're the inaugural um, three-part podcast here. So absolutely. That is very exciting. Uh, it's an honor. Um, a little bit more about the project. Yeah, thank you so much for that intro. Um, we're calling the project Anybody's Dream. And it's a media project about the emergent field of dream technology. And I say project broadly because we're simultaneously developing a TV series as well as a podcast. Um, we started filming at the beginning of this year at CES, the annual consumer tech trade show that's in Las Vegas. And we were there particularly interested in following a startup that was showcasing their lucid dreaming headband, which uh, we should talk more in detail about later. Um, but since then have traveled to Europe to film with Martin Dressler's lab, uh, where they're using EEG, fMRI and VR in a variety of studies. Um, and it was really after these two um, filming events that COVID hit. We were at the end of January and soon production restrictions were in place and we started channeling our momentum and our research into the development of a podcast. So really with the uptick in conversation around dreams during quarantine and major news outlets starting to publish articles like 
why am I having such weird dreams right now? It's just a really self-reflexive and insular time. And we're really excited to see people kind of paying more attention to their dreams. And we think it's a really apt time for this project because we're interested in kind of harnessing this energy and broadening the conversation out from some of these articles, which are a little bit more based in dream interpretation and psychoanalysis and are trying to open it up into some of the topics that you've already identified and provide additional perspectives from neuroscientists, technologists, and other cultural perspectives. So... So, so tell us a little bit more about um, the cast of characters. I mean, you've got really quite an, an eclectic group of thinkers, innovators, shamans, mystics, and the like. So tell us a little bit about the people that you're actually working with. Yeah, Courtney, do you want to tell us a little bit more about our cast of characters? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the conversations that we've been having is with Adam Horowitz, who's a member of the MIT Media Lab in the Fluid Interfaces group, which has a group of dream engineers. So they are actually creating a variety of prototypes that interact directly with dreams. And Adam worked really closely on the creation of this hypnagogic device called Dormio that allows you to program what you want to think about in hypnagogia. And we've just had the opportunity to dive deep with him about this device and his process of designing it and what the sort of reception and responses have been like and the potential applications to it. And one thing that's really exciting is how interdisciplinary his approach is and the lab's approaches to this work. Like they very much recognize the validity and the role of, um, you know, is things like meditation in uh, how, how to do dream science. So, you know, when we talk about the sort of the intersection of the hard, you know, cognitive neurosciences and a lot of the work that that you write on Andrew Moore in Buddhism and beyond. Like that's that's one of the things that we are most excited about when we're exploring what these devices could mean for the future of our dreams. So that's one example. And then perhaps Lori can talk more about the uh, the lucid dream device that we filmed with in Vegas and in the Netherlands. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, so we, we've been filming with this startup called iBand Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a lucid dream headband company. Um, they've been around, I mean, really, they, they started raising capital on crowdfunding as early as 2016, potentially earlier. Um, and they've raised over $2 million in the creation of this headband. Wow. Um, yeah, it's quite, quite amazing and, and really exemplary, exemplary of the demand uh, that people are seeking a device like this. And um, so we filmed with them in CES this last January where they were showing their prototype. And then we followed them to the Netherlands where we saw like their headquarters and some of the work that they're doing there uh, with the university to kind of test and develop their algorithm. And in fact, Courtney and I each spent a night sleeping in their lab, hooked up to a clinical EEG as well as their lucid dream headband to help them uh, validate their algorithms and, and provide additional data points for the machine learning that they're developing. And 
unfortunately, neither of us have gotten to try the lucid dreaming component to the device, but I should talk a little bit about how it essentially works. Uh, yeah, totally. So it can track your sleep stages and mm -hmm. can tell when you're entering REM. So, so basically through EEG, right? Yeah, through actually right two electrodes. Uh-huh. Uh, pretty impressive uh, that are that are sitting. It's a little tiny device, quite discreet, that sits on your forehead. Uh-huh. And it can track when you enter REM. And then it delivers light and sound cues to encourage lucidity. Um, we, I don't have any personal comments on whether or not it works because we weren't able to try that component of the device out yet. We were simply providing some baseline data. But where they're at in their process is they're currently um, manufacturing the devices for the first round to be sent out to their crowdfunding backers. So I guess the answer will be out in the public pretty shortly. Yeah, well, I want to throw into the mix that I, I actually tried the, the, the very first, I mean, um, kind of prototype of this, of course, the Stephen LaBerge inaugurated decades ago that you, I'm sure you both know of is a museum piece, but I got one called the uh -huh. Nova Dreamer. And I, I've had really good luck with this entity. And so for, for listeners, tell them a little bit more about how this stuff works, because I think this is one of the really exciting undercurrents uh, of what's happening in the dream science um, and especially lucid dreaming research these days are, are the transcranial stimulators, these types of gadgets that, you know, some of the purists I have to say, and I come a little bit from that um, tradition, being a student of the, of the Tibetan Buddhist gig, uh, there is a little bit of, you know, eyebrow raising with these sorts of things. But from my perspective, hey, if it works, I'll use it. And, it, mm. you know, saying a little bit more about how these babies work, I think is really helpful to our audience because um, it really just takes advantage of the really seminal contributions of the West and this kind of neurophenomenology, you know, that, that whenever you have a particular um, phenomenological experience, in this case, the dream, there are neurological markers. There are ways that they can gauge that you're doing it, whether, whether it's to obviously, probably most readily through things like EEG, and the like, and then taking advantage of that sweet spot as a way to then um, initiate lucidity. So can you say a little bit more to our, to our audience about um, how these things uh, work or anything in addition to add? Have you had a chance to try some of the other kind of generation um, gadgets around these sort of uh, lucid dream induction devices? So many of them are so hard to get a hold of now. So, you know, a story we've encountered again and again are the various devices that have been released in the years following the Nova Dreamer um, and then, you know, how they go off the market, so to speak, and, and become harder to find. Um, you know, we hear from the researchers that the um, veracity of, of data and flexibility of programming in the Hypnodyne ZMAX is quite uh -huh. useful. So of course, a lot of the university labs are using this for a range of sleep and dream research purposes and just the extent and the range of um, data that is available and you know to be programmed as well uh, is, makes that device a really useful tool for research. I think Lori uh, has, has a cool personal story around some of the 
transcranial stimulation research because she actually uh, met Ursula Voss not long after the 2014 study was published. And, you know, we've been tracking the uh, subsequent conversation and attempts to replicate that, that study since then. So Laura <clears throat> can say more on that. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel the urge to back up a little bit and just talk a little bit broadly about, you know, we can measure so many things coming off the body. We can track eye movements. We can get biometric data, your heart rate and your skin, your galvanic skin response. Mm -hmm. um, we can track all of these things that can tell us so much about what our body is doing and what state it's in. Um, that sometimes like, especially with EEG, with all of these wires and uh, it looks like it could be out of a sci-fi movie and there's questions about like, what exactly are these devices doing? And uh, am I going to be, should I be scared of this or should I lean into this or kind of how should I relate to this? And um, I think we've, we've seen such a range of technologies that are out there. And, and Courtney um, is bringing up uh, Ursula Voss, who, who published a paper with Ansgar Klimke in 2014. I think I have that year right. Um, and they used uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is actually stimulating the brain uh, using magnetic waves, uh, which, is, which looks very radically different than something like EEG, which is a non-invasive monitor of your brain response. You could think about it like talking into a microphone. Um, you know, you're not, nothing is coming to you from the wires. It's simply monitoring what's coming out of your brain activity. Um, so those, those two things I'd, I'd like to like create a difference between, you know, one is a monitoring of, of uh, what, what your biology, what your biology is doing. And one is like a direct influence on what that biology is. And both raise interesting questions about, you know, uh, how much uh, dreams can and can't be controlled, uh, which, what is the intention behind these devices, um, what might be lost or gained by trying to seek that control. I mean, the very similar questions to how we are learning to even seek lucidity in the first place. No kidding, uh, yeah. And so this really harks at the really larger issue of, of consciousness hacking altogether, um, dream hacking, sleep hacking, and that sort of thing. And, and so where do you see this going? I mean, if, if you had to put your uh, hands on a crystal ball here, are, <laughs> are you guys really excited with what you're saying in, in the research? Because I know Ursula's boss, her paper was really um, radical, somewhat controversial, yes, and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, this leads to a, a host of issues that we can explore, like the ethics behind this sort of thing, the kind of the shadow elements behind this. But maybe um, talk a little bit more about, you know, the notion of consciousness hacking in general and, and uh, dream hacking in particular. I mean, have you had where are you are landing on that? You know, this is really why we are making this project that is a, inherently a creative and artistic one to explore these ideas because, you know, when it comes to that crystal ball and projections and predictions about the future and potential concerns and trepidations about, you know, what happens when 
these devices are really turned robustly into products, you know, and, and what happens when uh, things like dream control and on-demand dream experiences become like capitalist enterprise. Uh, that's why we want to engage with this really rich set of questions through art in order to kind of imagine the future and the types of questions that uh, various people would be motivated to ask from a, you know, a variety of perspectives about why dreams matter and like what the stakes really are. We're really pulling from the mode of speculative fiction in this work. We're really in, inspired by the work of Octavia Butler, you know, one of the canonical sci-fi writers whose work is really being returned to right now because she anticipated in stunning and sometimes terrifying detail a lot of the changes that are happening in our environment and in our economies and our social structures. Um, she really called it. And so that's kind of why we want to pull together fiction and nonfiction in the projects that we're putting out there. We're interviewing scientists and technologists about the devices that they're making and lucid dreamers about why they are using these devices. But we're also incorporating fiction that speculates about the near future when some of these uh, you know, devices will be more widespread or more um, easily accessible and all the different kind of capital applications for them as well. Like even things like uh, tracking the early days of development of direct dream advertising. So we're, we're trying to get ahead a lot of, uh, of a lot of this in a um, contemplative way by raising questions through the modes of storytelling that resonate with people most and originate in our dreams. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting about this, and, and it, it, it took me several times to go through your pitch deck because it, it's almost, it, it, you know, it's indicative of the spirit that I'm gleaning from you guys all together that um, this kind of liminal, this liminality that is infused through what you're doing, that it's really hard to pigeonhole exactly what it is that you guys are doing. And, and that's actually quite refreshing. I mean, part of my left brain mind gets a little bit um, frustrated with it because it is a little bit all over the map. But so are dreams, right? I mean, dreams are all over the map. And so you, you are kind of expressing in your work and the cast of characters that I still want to continue going through, just the, the wide range of the dream experience itself, its connection to liminal states that you really can't land in um, kind of an absolute uh, kind of dominating bandwidth in any one of these arenas that you're exploring. And that somehow through the whole thing, you're creating this kind of pointillistic painting or this, this image that will, I mean, who knows what it's going to turn out to, but um, I, I find it somewhat interesting to even try to wrap your mind around it. And so therefore, <laughs> I think what you're doing is just rock'em, sock'em cool. And so you're, you're also introducing into the arena a host of neologisms, a, a bunch of new terms that I'm sure many people are not familiar with. Like you mentioned, for instance, dream advertising. Mm -hmm. um, or, or I know when I went through your pitch deck and we can talk about um, this a little bit more detail, neuromarketing. So is this a, a reasonable place to talk a little bit about that since you already threw that out into the open? I mean, what an interesting notion um, these terms actually are. Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can speak directly to this um, concept of neuromarketing, which is a whole field that's developed around 
yeah, what we can measure using neuroscientific tools and how those tools can be applied to marketing purposes. So there are companies like Nielsen, uh, a major data and uh, data company who has a startup that they bought called uh, NeuroFocus, I believe. And they're using things like EEG to understand how the brain is responding to advertisements so that they can, for example, find what is most appealing about a Coca-Cola ad and uh, make sure that those are the those are the seconds in the advertisement that they are playing up. Or if they're going to make an edit to that commercial, what seconds do they need to keep in based on how your brain is responding to that commercial? In the same, in the same way and in another application, um, having, have, using neuromarketing to have a participant look at a mock shelf in a store and track their eye movements to see mm. what, uh, what product their eyes go to first. Uh, to to then make assumptions about how to change their packaging to make it more appealing to the brain. I mean, this this stuff is happening now. What we're curious about is what happens when these questions start to get applied to the next frontier, which we believe are our dreams. Yeah, it's interesting. It also makes me think back on the old subliminal marketing strategies. I mean, there you you could actually probably talk about that as a type of neural marketing as well. But um, so, so along these lines, um, branding and dreams, dream branding for products and, and the like, uh, say a little bit more about that. I mean, this, is, this stuff is so out on the edge that I'm sure um, the vast majority of us listening to this are going like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, when Adam Horowitz uh, talks about part of the backstory of Dormio, and this is in his thesis, which is on his website, his master's thesis for MIT, if anybody would like to read it about Dormio, it's, it's a very excellent piece of writing. He talks about how he was approached by multiple corporations interested in using the technology to create subconscious emotional ties to products in people's dreams. And, you know, there was even a particular marketing stunt proposed around this. So, I mean, in, in some ways, it's not the most interesting question in so far as, like you're saying, Andrew, it's a fine line what you can even define as dream advertising, because in fact, our dreams are already influenced by subconscious emotional ties to products that are constantly being bombarded at us in all kinds of ways. I'm sure everybody listening to this, if they think hard enough, can remember one or more instances of, you know, things showing up in their dreams. That's like, all right, that's because that got put in front of my face, you know? Yeah. And then, of course, there's all the unconscious things that we can't detect there. Um, and then, you know, in terms of even the near future of this with more literal applications of dream advertising, it's also honestly like i i feel like it's it's an inevitability like it is like the logic of capitalism to continue to mm -hmm. try to incur upon every last precious space in the cognitive real estate for advertising so if they can push past the boundary of wake into sleep it's going to try to happen and that's why we want to illuminate you know what what the stakes are and what the questions are and and to the best of our abilities who's who's starting to uh do that work on the ground um and in terms of a lot of the technological and scientific research uh undergirding some of those advancements 
you know, we see a link between the, this kind of very nascent stage we're in with dream recording, um, which is the foundation for dream writing in that sense. And so insert right off the bat, um, dream recording, this is different from what most people think of as dream recording. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, so there is a proof of concept, like very rough, very early version of very early. recording dreams using neural imaging and neural decoding, you know, by a Japanese lab several years ago. And, you know, that particular lab isn't even continuing that line of research because dreams are so hard, so hard to do that it's like, okay, let's, if we're going to continue to try to capture what uh, particular cortexes or what's happening in the brain, like maybe let's start with thought in waking, you know, waking life. But, um, you know, that some of what I've heard is that it's a matter of finding invasive uh, technologies that are non-damaging to aid this process. So in other words, the tech kind of has to catch up with the science as the science needs to also continue to, um, you know, gain sophistication in, on the brain imaging level. But um, the the beginnings are are there. And optogenetics are is another area that there's been some preliminary research around, you know, essentially uh, activating and therefore controlling neuronal activity using uh, light and using kind of um, protein prepped uh, neurons. I mean, that's really amazing. And one of the things that strikes me immediately, and in fact, the, the nomenclature reveals it was when you mentioned this idea of invasive technologies. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest um, I don't know that what, what raised a, a, some concern with me around this material altogether. It, it's really this notion of one of the most, um, you could say, final refuges, a, a location of refuge for personal identity, for sanctuary, for ultimate intimacy and privacy is in fact the, the sanctuary of the dreaming mind. I mean, can you think of anything more intimate and personal than that? And so you know, the, the notion of having that mind space somehow violated by these technologies, uh, I think invasive technology is probably not a hyperbolic term in this regard. You know, how open um, will people be to uh, this type of uh, hacking and, you know, making their innermost dimensions of, of uh, experience available to the public domain, so to speak. I mean, so uh, when you think about this, where do you land with all that yourself? I mean, are you comfortable with these own, in your own experience with these types of uh, potential technologies? I mean, I think it's a, it's a complicated answer. And I think the cop-out is to say, it doesn't matter, it's happening. And so what we're trying to do is get out in front of it to ask the questions that are concerning us. Um, I. Personally, uh, I am conflicted because on the one hand, I find dreams to be a lifelong exploration and incredibly personally fulfilling and have, have been almost a trusted friend throughout my life. Uh, and things like spending time with my deceased grandmother in yeah. my dreams, you know, and, and having moments that are just unachievable in waking life are amazing. If there was a technology that could provide the ability to call up at will 
any of my deceased loved ones to spend time with in an, in a way that I could actually feel like they were with me. I mean, that is incredibly enticing. On the other hand, I think the questions that we're trying to raise are, who's creating that device? What are their intentions? Who's owning the data? Yeah. Uh, where is that leading? And what, you know, um, where's this all headed? And is it as innocent as spending time with my grandmother? Or right, right. What, 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 what ends up being the cost of this exploration? And, um, you know, both of us are approaching this project because we have deep relationships with our dream lives. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. because it's like, then are they, in fact, um, going to kidnap your lifelong friend, right? Right. You know, I mean, really, at what point do they cross that threshold? And when you say, let me ask you both this, when you say it's heading in this direction, um, regardless, how does that tie into uh, permission, you know, uh, consensual hacking, so to speak? Well, I mean, think about all the terms and conditions you've agreed to without reading. Think about all the data about your life and your behavior yeah. and your transaction that is out there owned by somebody else, used by somebody else. You have no idea about the who or the what. You know, I think it's already happening. When I, when I check those terms and conditions boxes because I need to hurry up and get through a transaction, I do feel like I'm betraying myself a little bit. And I do think that, you know, it's, it's not a moot question of having a protective barrier around dreams, but it is a more complicated question. And I think your own work uh, discusses this a lot, Andrew, in terms of consciousness being a continuum. And if we do kind of create a bucket and put dreams in it and another bucket and put waking life in it and pretend that, you know, that is a very concrete uh, distinction between the right. two, then we're not really doing service to our, you know, spectrum of forms of consciousness that we do occupy throughout the day and night in, in different ways. And so, you know, any question that you ask about how could somebody try to do that to my dreams, you should right. also be asking about your waking life. And they're already doing all of those things now. And you are not in conscious control of all the effects they're having on your, you know, neurobiology or biology or decisions, your psychology or emotional well-being, et cetera. You can think you are in charge. But the control is always an illusion, right? I mean, this goes back to some of the most basic Buddhist principles. So that's another reason why we think it's important to take a hybrid approach across genres of fiction and nonfiction to show how blurry that line is all the time and treat yeah, yeah. people to embrace that with more of an open mind. Yeah, I think that's a super important point because just like you say, you know, we, we have these kind of um, categorical predispositions where we think, oh, we're either awake or we're either asleep. And, and I think as you both know, even now in neuroscience, you, you know, the, there are certain parts, like during the day, like allegedly where all, all three of us are allegedly awake, but there are signatures within the brain now um, and even phenomenological, you know, obviously correlates experiences where there, there are dream experiences that constantly kind of um, pop up during the day. There's actually sleep experiences that pop up during the day. And so yeah. even, even the experiences themselves, regardless of what we're talking about here, they're not mutually exclusive states of consciousness. We tend to, I think, categorize them for lots of um, maybe, maybe pigeonhole, pigeonholing propensities that we have. But even that is an important tenet that uh, we have this hybridization of consciousness going on all the time. And exactly. so- 
And so what I think you're talking about here is, is really super important because then it's just a way to tap into what's already happening and make, making that a little bit more articulate and then realizing the, the, you know, the kind of the liminality or the transparency of what's actually uh, our state of consciousness altogether. Um, and so, well, let's continue through, guys, there's so much to talk about. Let's continue through <laughs> the cast of characters that you are uh, tapping into here. I mean, because there are some other amazing hitters that you have on your uh, docket. Sure. So, you know, you mentioned consciousness hacking and dream hacking, you know, that is, uh, there are various uh, kind of communities around those practices. And one is a bit of a subculture in Silicon Valley and tech world meets new age uh, interests. And we have a relationship with a cultural anthropologist named Alina Chia, who's a really excellent paper, paper called Virtual Lucidity, actually taking a media archaeology approach to the history of dream technology. And as an anthropologist, she's now spending a lot of time uh, kind of studying these uh, tech and startup uh, cultures around consciousness hacking and, and dreams. And she's actually writing right now about um, various nootropics and, and drugs used for uh, lucid dream experiences. And then we are also really excited about, and I'm curious if you're familiar with his work, Andrew, um, mm -hmm. James Pagel or Jim Pagel. I, I know of him. I'm not intimately familiar with his work, but I am familiar with him. Yeah. So he's a dream neuroscientist who was studying creativity and dreaming in the 90s. And he was trying to find artists to study this with. And his wife actually works at Sundance. And she was like, why don't you study the dreams of filmmakers? Yeah. And so from 95 to 97, he studied the dreams of filmmakers at the Sundance labs and looked at the role of creativity. And this led to collaborations with a lot of filmmakers over the years. He, he, he worked closely with Jonathan Demme. For many years, he was a consultant on Inception. Uh, he consulted uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in his performance in Donnie Darko and helped the 17-year-old kind of grapple with this very difficult to imagine script and how to kind of infuse the performance with a bit of a sleepwalking quality. And he's got a new book, uh, what's, it's not too new actually, 2017, uh, called Machine Dreaming and Consciousness, which I highly recommend. Mm. He's really bringing together in this book um, artificial intelligence and the question of whether it already dreams based on how we've programmed it, created it, taught it to learn, taught it to behave, whether the internet already dreams, and really bringing in a lot of uh, philosophy. Um, he's also spent time working with Buddhist practitioners and, and monks over the years, um, and also has this, this uh, very insightful interest in cinema. So it's also an interdisciplinary work and it's really uh, speculating ab about a lot of these these questions that, you know, what happens when dream technology or artificial intelligence that might be one of the great demarcators for the new generation of lucid dream devices in terms of the role of machine learning in adapting to the user and, you know, supposedly improving the um, accuracy of the device for that user, uh, like how this all plays out. So those are a couple of uh, the other folks that we're going to be talking to. That's amazing. And, and then there's also, if I remember here, there was also someone involved with um, the astronomer and, and working with uh, precognition in the dream arena. Is that still on the horizon for you as well? 
Yeah, yeah, we actually went out and have already filmed with Paul Kalis, who uh, is who you're referring to, and he's yeah, at CU Berkeley. Um, and Paul is an astronomer who had, when he was younger, a precognitive dream. So he had a dream about um, this uh, planetary system and wrote it down in his journal. And fast forward, he's now an astronomer at CU Berkeley and actually makes the discovery of that system. And he has a theory about precognitive dreams and explains it using uh, a lot of science, a lot of physics um, in, in a book that he claims like to really have taken a quite, quite the leap of faith in his career as an astronomer to really be talking publicly about supporting and even explaining precognitive dreams using science uh, as it's not exactly the most uh, accepted uh, as of a concept. So um, yeah, we interviewed with him as well. You know, that's amazing because this is one area where um, kind of wisdom maps of the mind really come into play um, because there, there's definitely a way, especially in the Buddhist arena, just to throw into the mix, when they talk about the strata of mind, the dimensions of mind. And uh, I know this is one of Courtney's favorite terms, you know, this idea of subsentence that you- Oh, yes. Actually, yeah, you can, you know, as opposed to a transcendence that, that one can literally wake down to um, extraordinarily subtle dimensions of mind. And in fact, the most uh, uh, subsendent of all domains that is referred to as Turiya in the Hindu tradition or the clear light mind, just one of many terms in the Buddhist tradition, is, is actually a dimension of mind that's pre-temporal, pre-spatial. And therefore, um, I've always conjectured that one of the ways to really look at the possibility of precognition within the dream experience is that one simply drops into that foundational bed of mind that is not subject to space or time. And therefore, um, one can access um, future events and then come back. Deja vu, for instance, can be registered in this way, precognitive dreams. William James had a lot to say about these sorts of things. And so, you know, to have a, 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 a hardcore astronomer almost risk his career. To he absolutely <laughs> is. I mean, the, the opening of the book is like, this is the Socratic gamble, you know, and I could, this could be career suicide. I could, you know, the same equivalent thing could be done. But if I don't put this theory out there to be engaged with by others and improved upon and tested, you know, it really deserves, uh, you know, rigorous scientific testing. Um, and, you know, just as, a, by the way, Andrew, I, I was reading your dream yoga book last year and really taken by, the notion of subsending and, and appreciating it on a variety of levels because, you know, we put so much uh, cultural emphasis and value on the idea of transcending in a variety of ways, right? Like that word gets taken up in a variety of ways, but we don't spend so much time looking down deeper within ourselves in many senses of the word. And so, you know, reading your book uh, at the time I started having more lucid dreams, I think even though I wasn't practicing any particular, uh, you know, set of techniques, it was just the exposure to a new way of thinking about lucidity, you know, that was, that I think really just activated my awareness in dreaming on a, on a higher level. And at one point in a lucid dream, I, I am with two people on a train going over a bridge. And I remember from the book that you say, you know, you can try closing your eyes in the lucid dream All right. and see if that triggers going down a deeper level and like subsending. Yeah. So 
So I say this to my companions on the train and let's all do this. And I close my eyes in the dream. And what happens is I basically just see a more, you know, vivid form of what you see when on the back of your eyelids. It was like, you know, almost like bright red splotches and black. But, you know, I'm just trying this out in the dream, but I'm not there. You know, I wasn't able to uh, go and, and subsend in that way without, I think, perhaps a, a more robust understanding or, or just contemplative practice around it. But it definitely showed up in that way. Yeah, I mean, how awesome is that, huh? <laughs> that's, that's super cool. And so, so how did you get to kind of recontextualize or, or contextualize this project altogether? What inspired you from the outset? I mean, obviously, it's not just a, a purely theoretical, um, philosophical, or even technological endeavor. My suspicion is that you both have had um, personal experiences in the world of dreams that have somehow inspired you to take this journey. Um, so can you share a little bit more about what brought you onto this path altogether? Yeah, we both got pretty fun stories. And Lori starts when she was like three years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, I. it has been kind of a lifelong exploration for me. I had my first lucid dream, yeah, when I was around five. Uh, and I was totally electrified upon waking. I had no idea what was going on. And I remember talking to those around me and my family had not experienced a lucid dream before and no one seemed to have language around it. And this kind of mystery about the capacity of human consciousness really drove me, I think, moving forward in my life to, to explore psychology and neuroscience as the tool for exploring it. Um, I feel like in some ways I didn't have a choice. Like yeah. I was having such vivid and emotive dreams as a child, as many, many people do, that it felt weirder and weirder to ignore it than to like try and figure out what was going on. Um, especially especially when your mom puts you in a sleep study at Northwestern. <laughs> yes. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. So I was young and my mom is scrappy and always looking for the extra buck. Uh, shout out to Ruth. And she... Uh, she, yeah, she enrolled me in dream studies. I was I was also having night terrors at an early age. I was kind of just, I had a very active sleep life um, and not a lot of outlets for it, I would say, until the internet, which I think really made quite an impact on the dream community, just giving people a chance to connect and to, to talk and um, became very active on dream views, which was a forum. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure many listeners and yourself know about it. Um, and yeah, it was kind of just like this starting to connect with the community that was also having lucid dreams, that was also having a rich dream life. And of course, later learning from Snyder and Gockenbach's estimates that 58% of all people experience at least one lucid dream in their lifetime. And uh, really my, my question was like, how is everyone so silent about this then? Um, so in college, I was studying neuroscience and was given the freedom to pick a topic of my choice for my senior thesis. And I chose the topic of the neuroscience of lucid dreaming. Yeah. Um, and my professors cautioned against it. They just didn't know of anything that was out there and they didn't think that it would be like enough content to substantiate my senior thesis. And I proved them wrong. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's that's when I really dove in and read about LaBerge and Hearn and Gockenbach, Erlocker, you know, the whole the whole gamut and was exposed to the rich history of the field of dream research and was 
like, again, electrified. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I'm just kind of summarizing my whole trajectory very brashly here. But um, I was graduating around that time and uh, Ursula Voss and Ansgar Klimke were publishing this paper uh, using transcranial magnetic stimulation. So I wrote to them, ended up flying out to Germany, meeting with their lab. And so it's been really like quite a lifelong experience, but to just put a cap on it all before I'll let Courtney explain as well, who has an amazing story. Uh, my career took quite a pivot away from science and towards film about three years ago when I realized that I was much more interested in kind of spreading the ideas and talking about and disseminating science than I was, you know, doing the nitty gritty of yeah. the research. Um, so. I've been producing and directing films since many related to topics of science. And this project is really the culmination of my interests and experiences. And I just a huge shout out to Courtney. I mean, we have such an incredible working relationship. We actually dream, I, I have dreams almost every other night of like Courtney and I talking about this project. Like we, <laughs> we are working through in synchronicity, some of these ideas, I feel like on, on multiple plot. We've um, had similar plans. dreams on the same night even. And so, so, so would you actually classify these as, as actually shared dreams or, or just kind of shared themes? I mean, do, do you find yourself actually, for instance, have you ever had a lucid dream together? where you meet in this kind of um, cognitive space at the same time? Has that ever um, happened between the two of you? That has not yet happened. Um, however, I can say that on our first night in Europe, we were sharing a bed before filming the next day. Uh, this was in the Netherlands and I had a lucid dream. And of course, the first thing I wanted to do was fly. And while I was flying, I was actively taking notes in the dream. I was like, oh, I got to tell Courtney about this. Awesome. You know, we got to talk about like the quality of the leaves and these trees that I'm flying above, you know, like it's, I no longer am having the distance from my, my dreams. I think we are intimately connected on this project in a lot of ways. So sharing the dream. Yeah, sharing the dream. So before I um, shift to Courtney's story, so obviously then dreams and then to what extent do lucid dreams continue to play in your role now? I mean, is this something that you actively practice or is it more kind of a serendipitous event for you? Is it a yoga for you or just an occasion that you take advantage of when it arises? The closest I got to any sort of yoga was reading your book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am absolutely intrigued and enthralled by the idea of making this a larger practice in my life. Uh, unfortunately, it's always kind of been a serendipitous event for me. Uh, and it's happened naturally in a way that I am very grateful for, but have never really gotten the opportunity to set an intention and to, to really try it. I really have not spent a lot of cognitive effort uh, attempting induction techniques or to make a practice out of it. So um, I'm hoping that just when we talk next, I can, yeah. I can uh, hopefully be in a more evolved place about it. But yeah. Well, I mean, I, as you know, just by working with this material and doing what you're doing, you're, you're, you're actually doing a form of dream incubation. I mean, you're, you know, you're seeding. We dream at night what we tend to experience during the day. And so it's already taking place, whether you know it or not. It's just mm. a matter whether you make it more overt. Um, but so, Courtney, give us your story. Sure. Yeah, just had a really vivid dream life as a kid, and was always really drawn to the mystery of the nature of consciousness. Even though I didn't really know how to name that. I mean, when I was like ten or eleven, I put 
I picked up the Consciousness at the Crossroads book that is uh, the collection of, of conversations at the second Mind and Life Institute conference. So I did not know, I had no exposure to Buddhism growing up in small town Ohio, and I had no idea what brain science was, but there was something about this book that just jumped out at me, and I wasn't able to read it at the time, and it's it's fascinating to be reading it 20 years later, and finally kind of catching up to these very nascent interests in myself, and I first discovered dream research from, you know, more of a scientific view, uh, more fully in uh, high school, just stumbling upon another book in the library. There's a lot of book uh, tentpole moments in my life, I suppose, including yours, honestly, Andrew. I just love okay. it so much. Um, and, you know, then when I went to college, I, I studied film and shifted to film, but I was always seeking more research and more connective ties between film and dreams and neuroscience because it seemed like there was really something there. You know, for me, cinema is the most resonant artistic medium with the experience of dreaming. And I now realize that's why I was drawn to it as an art form. Um, and then after, uh, you know, in my professional career, I ran an independent film nonprofit for several years and then moved to LA. And it was actually on uh, Groundhog Day last year that I was reading a book by Octavia Butler called Mind of My Mind. And I was reflecting back on this really excellent scene in the book of these telepaths connecting through psychic threads. And the next moment, my thought was just dream technology. Yeah. What's going on there? You know, and just kind of pick back up this old interest in dream neuroscience, just started researching extensively who was doing what in a very broad ranging way, you know, kind of most personally compelled to read a lot of the neuroscientific research, but realizing that in order to grapple with this as a subject matter required a much more broad uh, set of perspectives. I started cold calling researchers, just talking to these guys about their work. Um, and then I also, you know, discovered your work that way by listening to your interview on the Lucid Sage podcast. And I remember just like, suddenly this illusory form moment kind of clicked and the I was on a treadmill and I just like saw the matrix, you know, like as you're talking about it. So um, it became just this fully immersive kind of personal and, and professional pursuit. And then Lori and I had actually worked together uh, in at the film organization in Seattle that I'd run and we reconnected because I remembered about her own dream neuroscientific work. And sure enough, we, we started developing this project together. So for me, it, it, you know, part of, I totally hear you, Andrew, when you're like grappling with the, uh, all of the different threads that you're seeing in our description of the project in the pitch deck, but it, it kind of comes down to this, how dreams be, are, a, are a core portal into thinking about how there's connective tissue across everything from yeah. film to consciousness, the brain, you know, psychedelics, therapy, spiritual practices, ethics, like it's all there. So that's, that's why we're here. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And you know, in the, in fact, the book that you, you kind of keep referencing the, the dream yoga book, that's the first in the dream trilogy. The second one, by the way, comes out this week, which I'm super excited about. In in this book, you know, um, I riff a little bit about the the principal kind of Eastern supporting practice uh, for lucidity called the practice of a loose reform. And in that book, what, what what came to mind was what you were just saying, Courtney, was 
the kind of the universality of the dream um, motif or archetype is that I've come to the to the point in in my own study, and then I think probably most importantly my own experience, where there's just a whole lot of code language that goes on, kind of twilight language um, in in this business. And for me, I've gotten to the point where dream is really a code word for manifestation of mind, and and therefore if it's really related to um, accurately, everything is a dream. And in fact, I would say that this is what the historical Buddha, literally the awakened one, discovered. You know, I mean, it's very interesting for me to explore like, okay, what did this guy wake up from? What did he wake up to? Yes. Well, I would argue he woke up from a highly um, kind of categorized, reified, um, wake-centric you know, way of relating to the world where basically the wake-centric state is the only viable state to ex really either explore or even inhabit mind in reality. He woke up from that fundamental nightmare, in other words, the nightmare of reification. And what he woke up to was a dreamlike reality. I mean, Buddhists specifically talk about that as emptiness. And so that's where, you know, and just to throw this into the mix, that's where the dream yoga tradition really separates itself from classic lucid dreaming is that fundamentally dream yoga is all, all about exploring the central tenet in the Buddhist tradition, which are the teachings on emptiness. But so I think, you know, exactly in the line that you're referring to, Courtney, that in this larger kind of framework, dream really can be seen as just manifestation of mind, display of mind. And therefore it has this kind of universal application. And that's what's so rock and cool about what you're doing and the scope of what you're doing. You know, the kind of the innovative way of looking at all these different weaves these strands that can come together and really um, expand our horizons to understanding what the nature of dream is and therefore by implication the nature of mind and reality altogether i mean don't you think oh boy yeah. do we yeah <laughs> and so where does i, I did want to throw into the mix where does vr fit into this because you know when we're talking about cinema and film and it's super interesting isn't it that that most of our dreams, not exclusively, and I, I remember in my teens um, doing a series of kind of dream experiments where I wanted to see how viable it was for me to have other sensory experiences outside of visual. So I, I would do things in the dream like conjure up a, a rose bush and then intentionally stick my dream thumb into a dream thorn to see if I could feel dream pain. But I mean, vision um, dominates the the kind of dream experience. And so the, the relationship between that and what you're doing, connecting it to um, film and the visual arts is spot on. But how about VR? What, what, where does VR fit in? Because when I first experienced VR, I found it to be the most resonant experience in the waking state to what a lucid dream actually was. Um, so are you guys playing with that at all? Is that part of your charter? Are you exploring it in the actual project itself? We've talked about it a bit. We are tracking the studies that use VR, such as one that, that Dresser's Lab has done, and you know, VR as a way of training lucid dreaming, um, which you know, jury is out, but it seems, you know, like there's some effectiveness, but it's it's not as good as good old-fashioned audiovisual stimuli. Um and you know the I, the I think there's some bit of an interesting intersection with some of the VR and like PTSD 
therapy work that's being done in a few different spaces and potential applications for that type of therapy in dream work as well. Um, It could be um, an interesting way to explore the ideas. I mean, I would say that as the the project overall has developed, we found it to be really beneficial to be open-minded to the various mediums, like in an artistic way and in a media form kind of way that these ideas can play out because there really isn't just one mode of storytelling that's appropriate for what one might say is like the fundamental root of all story like from our dreams so uh yeah open to it but um you know i think part of what we're also pointing attention to is an interest in in troubling some of the reasons why people want to use VR or the description of lucid dreams as the ultimate VR experience, if that is about control and entertainment solely, which is so much of what VR projects tend to be about, Uh you know? So it would, I, I guess I would be curious how VR and in dreaming could be used to kind of contribute to contemplative scientific research, for example. Yeah, well, there's there's some interesting um, ways to work with it. I mean, let, let me just share one personal story. When I was doing this study that I did with a cognitive neuroscientist um, on virtual lucidity, we, we had the opportunity to bring into the lab a series of um, high-ranking high meditation masters. And one in particular, um, Tsongyur Rinpoche, who's a, a really an amazing um, Tibetan meditation master, we put him in and we had him do this little experiment thing that we had set up. And then we also hooked him up to just a bunch of other different programs. And, you know, 45 minutes an hour after really getting into this stuff and without any prodding from my part, um, and that was what was really cool because I had completely... Um, anticipated asking him these questions, which I didn't even need to do. The minute he took off the headset, he said this has, this technology has immediate application to things like um, bardo teachings, the the so-called literally referred to in the Tibetan worldview as the dream at the end of time. In other words, allegedly what happens to you after you die. He said this this technology can be used for that. It can be used for what's called generation stage practice, which is a, a really massive part of both Tibetan and Hindu tantric practice where you engage in very elaborate, sophisticated visualizations as a way to um, work with forming the mind. And in fact, in my own experience, I've I've personally discovered that the more I do these kind of, um, it's somewhat connected to Jung's notion of active um, imagination. Sure. The The more I do these visualization practices in a very real way, you're exercising the same kind of cognitive um, muscle where you're working with these aspects of mind that, that can really be stabilized in the visualization set of practices. And so when Sonia Rinpoche said that, he said also Pure Land practice, that's another one, because, you know, there's a lot of visualization inherent, especially in Tibetan Buddhism. And he said that VR could be used to kind of grease the skids for that sort of thing. Have you come across that in your own um, traffic with some of the other scholars and in, in researchers and whatnot that you've talked to about any of this? Have they talked anything about like this material? 
That is super interesting. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, we, we did uh, talk in Martin Dressler's lab about a study that they're doing, and I won't go into too much detail. Uh, in, this study's not published yet, but they sure. are exploring VR um, from, from the perspective that it creates a natural dissociation with waking reality. And right. so kind of using that dissociation in in daily practice, 15 to 20 minutes or however long over a period of time to encourage that disassociation in your sleep and dreaming life. Um, I think that that is our closest interview that we've had, but we've encountered the concept uh, in a lot of different places. Yeah, that's awesome. And so let me ask you this. So with everything that you've done um, in this kind of emergent design process, you know, the, the fact that you were both so flexible and that's the other cool thing i have to throw this into the mix you know the the type of, of flexibility that these practices actually fundamentally bring about that's also somewhat inherent in the work that you're doing that you're both so open-minded that um, the emergent design is that you're just completely willing to um, embrace alter your your trajectory and basically include almost anything that will you know kind of support your your particular um project here but of all the things that you've done, what stands out is the most surprising? I mean, what, what are some of the like ahas or like, whoa, didn't expect to find that, that you've encountered in this really kind of eclectic um, adventure that you've both gone on? That's such a good question. You know, I think that because I've just been reading uh, James Pagel's book about machine dreaming, it has help me to return to some classic philosophical texts that I'd read before, but really hadn't thought about in this light. And it's been such a helpful framework. And that is around the origins of Cartesian dualism. And, you know, this idea that Descartes back in the 1600s was questioning his sense of reality in opposition to dream and you know if if you're a student of philosophy you've you've encountered this story and we've all encountered the consequences of his work around um, the distinction between mind and body and a lot of the dichotomies and binaries that scaffold a lot of just western systems of knowledge and fields of knowledge production. So the idea that self is not other, that subject is not object, you know, that wake is not dream. This, a lot of this got set up by this guy who was needing to find a way to create a distinction between his dreaming experiences and, and what he considered to be his purely waking experiences. And the link that I hadn't fully reckoned with until now is the degree to which a series of three dreams that he had on the night of November 10th, 1619, formed the basis for the scientific method specifically, and that, you know, he felt a need to uh, call out how we have to create the ultimate test to determine if something is real by determining once and for all that it is not dream because dream can be, um, you know, so convincing in, in its illusions. And so 
you know, the idea that the way that we do science in the West today is so directly informed and stemming from a night of dreams that this guy had in 1619 and that he had the dreams because he didn't drink that night for the first time in, in several nights and had this like REM backlash has, has been ha, ha, really, really impactful on me in terms of the, the framework for seeing the arbitrariness with which we distinguish between uh, wake and dream and everything you're saying about the wake-centric society that it ends up implying this this set of values and showing the self-limitations that some of our greatest thinkers put on themselves because of their inability to uh, other you know find another way and another framework of grappling with the full extent of his own internal experiences. And lastly, the other thing that surprised me just the other day is realizing that 1619 is a significant year in another way because it was the year that the first slave ships arrived in the u.s oh wow that's amazing and it's hard it's hard to you know see these things as coincidental yeah wow that's amazing (laughs) anything anything else along the surprises what's what's popped up what else what else is like whoa i had no idea this was on the horizon here I mean, it's so funny, like when I'm trying to, th- we've, we've engaged with so many amazing scholars and neuroscientists and ideas, Redditors, um, uh, one of, um, I'm, I'm just trying to think of how much we can reveal here, um, but just, just the way that this is moving forward, uh, one of the interesting examples is that um, one of the people we're speaking to is consulting a video game company and is actually helping the video gamers, uh, the designers of these games tap into the hypnagogic state to tap into greater forms of creativity um, and to actually design these video game worlds. And I just, just seeing the ways that this is starting to infiltrate kind of like modern capitalism and and all of its different applications has been really interesting but like one thing i keep returning back to despite seeing all of this stuff happening is like our own dream lives like mm-hmm. so much of what courtney and i talk about like before we're talking about the project before we're talking about who we're interviewing next is like what our dreams taught us that night yeah. or like what yeah. we dreamt about and i i can't say i mean I just can't ignore that in all of this is like we spend just as much talking such spend just as much time talking about our dreams as we do the people that we're talking to. That's, that's fantastic. And so when you, when you look forward, I mean, this is, a, you know, as we're starting to slowly wrap up here, um, what, when you look forward in all these different venues that you're exploring, what is it that inspires you the most and then um, right after that, what is it that concerns you the most? I mean, what do you see? What, do you, what, is it, what, do, what do you see that really gets your juices going in terms of like, whoa, we're, we're, you know, we're really on to something here. And again, this is a way to, to somewhat summarize what we've been talking about, but I just wanted to provide the platform whether there are other kind of directions of inspiration that really tend to magnetize you, that get you excited every day. You know, just how much attention 
was turned towards dreams during the beginning of the pandemic was heartening to me. It was it was it was surprising even. I mean, you could guess that that would happen, but I would not have guessed that the amount of media attention that that came and, you know, the Deirdre Barrett's book and everything um, and the return of awareness to uh, the Third Reich of Dreams, you right. know, as a collection of very historically significant dreams. I just love that people started paying more attention and wondering more about their own dream lives. So I'm really excited about how we can enter into that conversation and, you know, kind of add some of these stories that and, and avenues of exploration and, and offerings of self-experimentation at home that like folks wouldn't necessarily encounter otherwise. And to just feel like we're in conversations with, with folks like yourself and the work that you're doing. So that is, is really exciting. The, the opportunity to elevate awareness about the full extent of the significance of dreaming and using you know, especially artistic mediums to do so, just given how inextricable art is from dream. You know, some say art is dreaming with our eyes open. So um, that's really exciting to me. And I suppose, uh, you know, a lot of my concerns are the obvious ones around the exploitation of dream technology for you know, mindlessly capitalist purposes, and also what happens when, I mean, something that I think we're really lucky to be doing in this project is we can really be at a at a nexus and at the intersections of different modes of thinking and disciplines because we're trying to capture a bunch of different voices and perspectives. So we get to talk to scientists, but we also get to talk to um, you know, everyday people and therapists, etc. So, you know, what happens when people work in silos around dreams and when the, the kind of scaffolding for dream technology isn't interdisciplinary, but is only driven by, you know, commercial interests and technological development, um, that's how we get into a lot of the situations that are have have really devastating consequences that we constantly find ourselves in with um, you know business and technology run rampant without having a robust kind of ethics guiding it. So you know some of my interests too are around neuroethics and how this work can contribute to that uh, set of conversations as well. And how, how encouraged are you both with the, the feasibility of actually having uh, a, a you know, kind of code of ethics or, or a panel of experts that really talk about these sorts of things? Because eventually, you know, a little bit like genetics and the like, um, it's already running up against that membrane, right? Um, and so are you encouraged that there's going to be enough concern and even collaboration between all these disparate voices where they can come up with, with a decree, so to speak, or at least sound some... Um, cautionary alarms about where some of the stuff could be going in the wrong direction. I mean, I'm encouraged by how much we're finding so many systems crumbling and falling apart all around us that like, who knows even what the world will look like, you know, in a month, right? At this point, it's, it's very hard to predict or plan for anything. And the way in which we might be seeing some death throes of some systems uh, that are oppressive by nature um, is, is where that encouragement 
lies, I think, in terms of like the next generation of who's thinking about how to do uh, dream science more collaboratively and any, you know, technological developments that come out of that also more collaboratively. But people are certainly talking about it. And the AI and ethics conversation, um, you know, should definitely get linked up as, as more and more people start talking about dream tech. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, whatever we can do, right, you know, to, to bring that crowbar in and dislodge us from the, the wake-centric view and, and to increase our allegiance. Because, you know, it, it's this really interesting archetype that, or I should say motif that I'm exploring just to throw into the mix of the, this notion of um, the lost temple of sleep that, the, you know, the ancient traditions just had such a, a, a more honored, treasured relationship to the dream state. And I know Charles Laughlin, at least the one, he's a neuroanthropologist, you may know his work, communing with the gods where he says that of the 4,000 world cultures outside of you know, the Eurocentric model, 90% of those cultures um, pay as much attention to so-called ultra states and particularly mm -hmm. the dream as they do the waking state. And, and yet I think it's, it's largely, and I think it's a very interesting thing to explore through in fact the dominance, uh, you know, wake centricity, site centricity and photocentricity are all deeply connected in the, and in the service fundamentally of egocentricity. And so whatever we can do with work like yours um, and other you know, uh, contemplative sciences that you're referring to in your own work to dislodge this, this kind of dominance of the wake-centric view will be of tremendous benefit. Because otherwise, if we're not, if we don't do that, you know, we're, we're bearing witness to the consequences of the nightmare that otherwise results. I mean, don't you think? Absolutely. So, and so as we start to wind this up, you guys, oh, this is just so, so incredibly rich and fruitful. Um, I, I wanted to just say one thing and then give you a chance to talk a little bit about how people can support you, learn more about what you're doing. I, I have always maintained, and uh, there was a really interesting um, kind of support that came out. I'm sure you read or, or perhaps have looked at Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. Yes. And, you know, he's a really interesting thinker. And remember, he, he just allocates, I think, maybe three, four pages max to lucid dreaming. But remember what he says at the end of this thing, which kind of blows me away because, you know, I mean, this is a hard-hitting neuroscientist, right? And remember the very end of that one section, and I say this a lot because it's so compelling, and I think he's a very insightful thinker. He says it's entirely possible that, that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. And I've, I've really maintained for, for years now that, um, especially with the refinement of the induction technologies, the I-band, the transcranial stimulators, the nootropics and the like, that once the induction methods are really refined, and, and I have to say this is the monumental contribution from the West. Eastern techniques are great, they're, they're fantastic, but I actually find the Western induction methods to be more applicable. Um, and so I think once these um, induction methods are refined, where people can have uh, lucid dreams with some regularity, it really does represent the, the pedagogy of the future. I mean, it really is like a type of night school where we can do, I mean, again, you know the numbers as well as I do, you know, up to six years of our lives is spent in, in the in the dreaming state and if we i mean you get a phd in less than six years right so <laughs> imagine what you can do if you could really harness the the resources of the dreaming state and your project is very much in in harmony with doing that because by bringing all these different tracks 
into the public um, lens, then we can start to shift towards the, the, you know, the feasibility of really tapping into this vast natural resource that we have. So that's why when I read over what you're doing, I get pretty jazzed because you know, you're talking about um, the future of, of the dream world. I'm really looking at this as a, as a marvelous kind of augmentation to psycho-spiritual development. You know, that virtually, as you know, everything you can do in the waking state, you can do in the dream state. And according to the tantras with, with greater efficacy, I mean, you know, seven to nine times more transformative potential through the practices that you do during the night, um, you know, versus the ones during the day. But as we start to wrap this up, how can people um, learn more about you? How can they support what you're doing and, and um, you know, continue to just stand behind you? Yeah. Um, well, you can find us at anybodysdream.com. Um, we are also at this time actively looking to connect with individuals who have, you know, stories of dream life or, and applications of uh, how they've used lucid dreaming in their life, as well as researchers and just such a variety of collaborators that if anything we've talked about is exciting to you or you want to reach out, uh, going to that website, anybodysdream.com, you'll find our email and please do reach out. Uh, we would love to connect and uh even just if you want to get regular updates on the project, where we're at, when the podcast is coming out, when the TV series is, is greenlit, uh, that is the place to do it. Well, we don't have a formal email list yet, but we are in the beginnings of starting it. So that is the link. Fantastic. And do you guys have any sense with, uh, with uh, you know, once the vaccine comes out and things get back on track once you can step back out into the world do you guys have a an intuition of when your project might be um, hitting the press yeah we're really focusing on the podcast right now since that is what we can produce during this time when constraints make it really really uh nightmarish to think about doing any tv or film production yeah. so yeah the aim for that is this year to to release so we're really excited to keep folks abreast of our of our progress on that like Lori said we are um, really open to being in conversation about all kinds of things so uh, do not hesitate if you want to reach out and so the podcast can be accessed through that same website or is that a different link Oh, we're producing it now. So it will, yeah, we will uh, make sure to add information about and, uh, you know, access to it on that website when it's out. That's really great. And so any final comments from you guys? Anything else that you want to share with our, with our gang about um, where you're going? I mean, I, I feel like what you just summarized so nicely, Andrew, with, with Matthew Walker's work is like, what we're talking about is really why dreams matter yeah. and where we're headed and why we should care about the questions we're proposing around them. Um, so, I mean, what, what's just exciting to me is that we can have this conversation and, and every day in just talking about the project, I feel like I'm connecting with someone who thinks about their dreams differently or is starting to think about their dreams differently. So uh, just overall, I just extreme gratitude for having us on today so that we can continue those conversations with you and others about why dreams matter and why we should be talking about their future. Yeah, really. It's just a delight. And, and really, it's such an incredible natural resource that remains just untapped and and what you guys are doing bringing in all these um weaves these different strands from all these different traditions is so original 
um, I, I personally can't wait to learn more about um, all the different avenues that you're tracking and, and uh, fundamentally it's gonna uh, land and, and make quite a splash, I believe, because uh, the integrity that you bring to it, the scope that you're bringing to it, the passion and the heart that you're bringing to it, um, it can't help but succeed. And so to whatever extent um, this community on our end, the nightclub community can support you when, when you guys release everything, maybe we can have you back online um, to talk a little bit further, unpack some of these things a little further, because you know you guys are connecting deep into the well and you have so much to offer and uh, we wanna stand behind you to whatever extent we can. So it's been a total delight to spend some time with you. Thank you again for taking the time to be with us and let's meet again um, in this medium or maybe in the dream space and uh, see if we can do some uh, good in the world today. So thank you guys so much for joining us, appreciate it. Thank Likewise. you.